Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with feminist literary scholar and award-winning author, Dr. Barbara Boswell. Barbara is the head of the English department at the University of Cape Town and has taught gender studies and African women's literature at the University of Virginia, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County in the USA, as well as the University of Cape Town and the University of the Western Cape. She earned a PhD from the Department of Women's Studies at the University of Maryland, College Park, where she studied as a Fulbright Scholar. Her MPhil was completed at the Women's and Gender Studies Program at UWC. Barbara is the author of the award-winning Grace, a novel that was published by Mojaji Books in 2017 and won the University of Johannesburg Debut Creative Writing Prize in 2018. It was published in the US in 2019 as Unmaking Grace. Grace has been deservedly praised by many, including the Kirkus Review, which called it a smart, compassionate portrayal of one woman's quest to end the cycle of violence. Barbara's writing and academic activism espouses her belief in writing as a feminist and spiritual practice and as a practice that can heal trauma and build connections. Her research interests include post-colonial African literature, feminism and post-coloniality, queer theory, black feminist thought and intersectional feminist theory, and she's published multiple academic works and papers on these topics. In 2020, Barbara published and wrote my story anyway, Black South African Women's Novels as Feminism, which was published by Wits University Press. The collection archives the work of several women writers, exploring their writing as source and site of feminist theory. This year, she also published an essay in Surfacing, a collection edited by fellow feminist literary scholars Desiree Lewis and Khabiba Badarun. In an interview with Catalyst Press about her novel Grace, Barbara says, I see myself as a literary activist, an arts activist, using my work to create change and a more socially just world for women and other marginalized communities. So today I'm going to be talking to Barbara about feminism, the responsibilities and rights of feminist writers, and the power of telling stories to change our future and our understanding of the past. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for that lovely introduction and thank you for having me on your podcast. Such a pleasure to be talking with you. And I really struggled to decide which point to start the conversation today because you're a person who's a creator and an activist in so many different spaces, fiction, literary theory and critique and in the academy. And I didn't want to incorrectly prioritize one of those identities over the other. So I was wondering whether you prioritize any parts of this identity in your understanding of yourself or whether for you they are all intersecting. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's quite a difficult question, um, and I'm not sure how to answer it, except to say that I wish I prioritized the writer part of myself more than the others. Um, at the moment, I'm an academic. That takes up most of my time. I think where I spend my time teaching and also an administrator at the university where I teach. I'm head of department, and that's a, a temporary position, you know, because it's rotating, but it takes quite a lot of time. And so I find myself mostly doing admin these days. But um, certainly for me, what drives me and what I feel really moves me and what may ultimately be my contribution to the world is um, writing. And so for me, trying to carve out a little bit of space every day to write creatively or scholarly work um, is very important. I don't always succeed at that. But the other domain, which I really love and have grown into more and more, is as a teacher um, at the university. And also in other spaces, I do, well, prior to COVID, I was doing work at high schools. Um, around Cape Town. So um, I think as long as I'm able to teach um, and engage in that way and also write, I think those roles are really the most important for me at this point where I find myself in my life and career. 
And I read somewhere that you are a morning writer. You like to get your writing done early in the morning. Is that true? Yeah, I actually am. I, I, when I'm really writing well and productive, at the beginning of the year, this year, for example, I was writing a scholarly text. I was doing short stories um, and I was writing book reviews for a journal, a popular journal, not an academic journal. And I was, I was just thinking about that yesterday and um, it, it, it really does help me. I, I, you know, if I start at 5 a.m., I usually get two to three very productive hours of work in and then I will start my day with the mundane chores of making breakfast and doing dishes and which is part of life you know and which is necessary for the other activities to happen so um, yes I'm a morning writer that is a very long answer to a short question. I envy you. I'm so not a morning person and I read so many books where writers speak about like those quiet morning hours and how, I mean, I think you write in that once you've started your day off right, the administrative stuff doesn't feel such a burden. It feels just, you know, something that you can get through because you've done the real work for the day. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm inspired by your commitment. <laughs> you know, I think I also read about this whole idea of having a writing practice and a writing routine that every day you spend six hours or eight hours sitting by a desk from eight to nine, or, you know, it, or eight to four. It, it's a very male-centered idea, and it's not often possible for women, and especially black women, or but all women, really. Um, you know, if you think about what we are tasked with in our lives, um, care work, um, the undervalued work of mothering, of caring for others, of caring for parents, um, emotional labor of making relationships work or go ahead, and then also the work of often the domestic work within a home, if you're in a family setup, it's it's quite difficult then to have a routine. And then we tend to beat ourselves up over that. But really when life is so um filled with, with other things and other imperatives, it's difficult to have a daily routine. I have this writing routine. I'm able to have this writing routine because I have an adult um son. So I don't have caretaking work anymore for young children that need to be schooled and driven to school or homeschooled. And I don't have to provide dinners or lunches and I don't have to be there emotionally present in the same way that you need to be for an eight-year-old or a two-year-old or a teenager. And, And therefore, a lot of what we, the time that we don't have to write um, is time that we are as women caring for others and caring, um, doing labor that isn't compensated and isn't acknowledged as valuable. And therefore, um, when I talk to women about writing, I always say, well, if you can find some sort of routine that's not every day, but even if it's every second day or two days a week or three days a week, it's still important to try and carve out that time where you are immersed in your creative pursuits and even just honoring that time finding it and honoring can make a huge difference to your mindset so that you are when you are creating and so you know don't envy me being a morning person because for some people that time is at 11 o'clock at night when the kids have gone to bed and you have one hour um you know so the, you know, we have to make it work for us, but the commitment to carving out the time, I think, is key and valuing our own time and what we can do for ourselves. It's so true about putting the value on it as well, because um, I think I recently reread Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic, and she said, you know, people are always able to make time when they're having a saucy affair. <laughs> like you can always <laughs> find time in your life for the thing you actually want to do. So it's about putting value on your own you know, mental and creative well-being as well. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And I know other writers, friends of mine, who work very well after midnight and they take those hours. So whatever time works for you, it's just being able to make it almost sacred, you know. Definitely.
And so one of the products of your writing is Grace, which I read only recently. I couldn't believe that I hadn't read it before. And I found it so moving for so many reasons. And all of the characters are still lingering with me after reading. And I find I'm thinking about them a lot and just feeling a lot of compassion for all of them, but also sadness for the way that sort of structural violence, alcohol abuse and systems of power can harm and shape even the very best people. I was thinking about the process of writing this book and what sparked it for you. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, thank you for that question. It started out really when I was a student doing my PhD and I was looking to do something other than my dissertation and I would just write in a journal. It's The, the novel is very loosely based on my own childhood. Um, although it is a, it's not an autobiographical novel and it's not autofiction, it, 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 it um, starts with um, some of the things that I was writing about at that time in a journal. I wrote them as a way of processing my own trauma of having grown up in a very violent home with an addict as a father and someone who was quite violent towards my mother and me. And so um, I started writing and writing just to process. And then at a certain point, I realized, well, this could be a story or this could be something that other people may want to read and maybe it could be helpful or useful. And I just was driven by that impulse. But then I, st I fictionalized it. So I took one, the seed of, an experience which profoundly shaped me and made me the person who I am today and made me into a feminist. And um, I fictionalized from there the, the, the novel. I wrote a story. And it was... Um, I, I, I really just wanted to bring... I wanted to write about violence because I wanted to understand it and gen gender-based violence. I really wanted to understand what makes... Um, a person become violent to their most intimate and the people that they love the most. And um, I understood it on, a, on an intellectual level because I've studied violence against women and gender-based violence. And I know there the are theories about the cycle of violence and about patriarchy and entitlement to women's bodies and entitlement over children's bodies. But I, I wanted to understand it, I suppose, on an emotional level. And that's what the novel, writing the novel, allowed me to do. I could inhabit the psyche of an abuser um, through writing the work. And it's, um, it, it was just something that I continued to do to see where would this get me if I continue writing. Mm. I mean, it was so powerful because you you do struggle not to feel compassion for Patrick in the story against my like very best intentions to hate him for what he for the way that he was behaving. It's impossible to because you create this character that the reader can only feel sadness and compassion for. Um, so I think that was very well done and um obviously took a lot of courage and thoughtfulness on your part. And you mentioned that you wrote it whilst you were out of the country for your studies and working in the USA. And I also often find that when I'm at home, you know, reading the news and going through the complexity of living in South Africa, the challenges of our country and the characters who do and can live in it in an imaginative, imaginative sense, feels quite overwhelming. And so I, I can't really see stories on the day-to-day -day, but when I have a little bit of distance I can see that there's room for movement and hope and opportunity as well um, so despite everything that Grace had to go through the novel ends on this really hopeful note and I wondered if you knew that it would end that way when you started or with, whether it emerged from the writing process. No I had no idea how the novel would end I would um, I would sit and think what is going to happen next and then I left it probably halfway done for about a year or two I can't remember and then you know I, it just kept pulling me back and I thought well you have to finish this because you have to find out for yourself what is going to happen and I had a scene in mind as a conclusion for the novel that was quite a sweet 
seen and but when I got there it wouldn't come and it didn't feel authentic I don't like the word authentic in relation to writing or to many other things actually because what is it but it, it really just didn't feel like what these characters were meant to be doing at that point and so in a way the characters directed their own story by the end of it and the end um, you know the end is quite ambiguous I didn't know what would be next for that character and I didn't want to speculate at that point. I wanted to bring her to a certain point in her life where she would have the agency and perhaps ability to imagine a different life for herself and to create a different life for herself. So I brought her to that point. But I don't know. To me, I, I try to end it on a hopeful note, but a lot can be read into what maybe happens next. That is up to the reader to think about. Yeah, I think you write in that writing any more than that, even as a reader, it would have felt like you were trying to solve things for us that because you know the character of Grace so well as the reader, you 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 are also not sure. You just hope that it's going to be you know, that it's going to go a different way. And she's such a headstrong character, but she's also deeply shaped by her experience of interpersonal violence and structural violence and the unpredictability of the era that she grew up in as a child and the uncertainty of her life in post-apartheid weird world. And as an adult, she's so responsible in some areas in the way that she goes to work, for example, and tolerates her strange boss but reckless in others, um, which I think is characteristic of many people who grow up in traumatic conditions and periods in history where stability feels riskier than than instability. Um, And I'm sorry that you had to live through those experiences as well. What, What was it like developing her character and what did you hope that people would take from Grace's story? Well, it was... Grace is a traumatized character. It's a character living with suppressed trauma and PTSD and not even knowing it. And that is a person or a character who needs to work through that trauma in order to really integrate it and become a healthier person. The character is very is a psychologically unhealthy person because she has to be after what she's lived through. And so um, writing that character, it was, it was interesting because um, it starts off as an innocent character, right? As a child who is a victim and who goes through these things and events happen to her and the tides that wash over her politically and personally, and she has to go with that tide. But then she becomes an adult, and this is where the character becomes quite unlikable. Um, to me, Grace is not, as an adult, is not an admirable or even a strong character, or maybe she is. She's not a, a someone that you would perhaps look up to as a character. And the story takes over that character cannot but be this dysfunctional, risk-taking, also addicted personality because how do you go through trauma, unhealed trauma, unworked with, and come out of it a glowing, healthy, resilient... You may be resilient, but you're going to be dysfunctional. And so I had to battle with that all the time in my writing because I wanted her to be exemplary. I wanted her to be good. I wanted her to be pure. But it she isn't. And I had to accept that. Um, as I was writing it, uh, I a lot of shame came up for me um, personally. Because I knew that I was drawing from my own childhood. And then I thought to myself, why are you doing this? I had this real paranoia that people would read my life onto Grace's life and think that I'm Grace. And and then you, I sat with all of those things and I, I just let the feeling of shame come and I didn't try to push it away. And I, and I, I journaled a lot and I said to I wrote in my journal a lot and feeling a lot of shame and I wonder why. And, and I worked through it because I, it, it, it did affect me that why are you telling a story that's ugly 
and why are you telling the story of family secrets because as growing up with uh, violence in the home the main thing that you learn you take it in like with your breast milk is shame and silence and you're not supposed to talk and you're not supposed to tell although everybody knows but you're not supposed to talk about it you're not supposed to tell people what's happened you're not supposed to make the family look bad and so I think all of those feelings came up for me because if I was to publish this my my name you know my name is the same as my father's if it ever comes out in Cape Town people will know it's me all of those things I had to sit with and I I worked through it and decided well I'm not going to let these kinds of feelings stop me so writing Grace evoked shame made me want to write a better character a more likable a a good character but the story wouldn't allow that I think it's very important that you were that in a way that this allowed you to work through that because the story is so important for people to read and I think many many readers will benefit from the healing that comes through just reading about that and seeing how it affects Grace and you know perhaps considering how it's affected them so I think it's really amazing that you managed to to get through that writing process. Um, do you think that you will write more novels or are you more into the non-fiction or the academic scholarly writing at the moment? Oh, I really would love to write more novels and I'm writing short stories at the moment. But also it seems I'm always pulled in both of these directions and I don't know how to stop it. So I do both and I never feel happy with either. I'll work, you know, one hour on this and then I'll switch to that. And But I think, So I do want to write more fiction, definitely. I I would like to go more in that direction. But then I also think there's something compelling like this biography that I'm writing on Loretta Noble. I think it's important for us to leave scholarship and records of people's lives and research from, from the perspective of my politics. I think it's also really important. And so I also keep getting pulled into research that I think is really important that no one else is going to do if I don't do it. But in some ways, it's nice to have a distraction. So when you don't feel like doing the one, you have to do the other one. <laughs> it at least keeps you doing something creative at the same time. Yes, but then you also never rest, which is uh-huh. important. I've realized it's very important to pace oneself mm-hmm. and rest because I've pushed myself so hard over many many years and then it's not always the healthiest way of being and producing so tell me a little bit more about your work um as a head of department in the english department how do you negotiate being a feminist in such a big institution and what are some of the things that bring you joy in your work well i've tried to really have feminist leadership principles that i enact and I'm so I'm very consultative and I'm quite into mentoring and I hope nurturing younger scholars who are just starting out, whether these are graduate students or new um, faculty that are teaching with us. I suppose those are just good leadership principles anyway. I try to really be inclusive and collaborative. My whole tenure thus far has been during the COVID period. And so I've done it for one year now. And so we've been working from home that whole time, which added a different layer of challenges and complexities. And it's almost been a crisis mode from the start because when I took over as head of department last year, we were going into our first exam period distance learning uh, in emergency distance learning mode and so everything was different and everything was new and there were lots of pressures and problems and then it's also about supporting the students but there, there really is it's a very difficult time for students and we are keenly aware of how this emergency or remote learning has impacted students the issues of access equity and access 
students not having access to data or software or hardware that enables them to do well. We know of students that are doing things on their phones and just how that exacerbates inequality who's doing well in this environment some people are thriving they've got their own bedroom they've got wi-fi they've got their own computer and other people are looking after younger siblings or nieces or nephews and living with three or four generations in the house and don't have the space physical space let alone mental space to do their work and so it's it's trying to really be aware of those are the people that we are serving at the moment and what the challenges are and we are falling short all the time with um while we are learning how to be in this new mode and it's it's just been a challenging time um and i'm a very reticent leader but i've learned to that i need to really embrace leadership and go with it and embrace the role and and so the institution is is very interesting because it is a institution that tries to run on sameness and there's this productivity discourse which is important but as as someone who's very opposed to these neoliberal tendencies that are creeping more and more into our universities, um, this position also enables me to articulate um, a way of being that that doesn't straightforwardly just push people to produce um, and is a more humane way, I think, of doing things. It's, it must have been really lovely for the students that you're working with to have someone who understands that there, that there isn't this flattening of everyone, you know, there isn't the sameness like institutions often try to enforce. Yesterday, I listened to the Governing Intimacies webinar that you were on, where you spoke about the importance of intergenerational feminist conversations. Can you tell me a bit more about what you think should be on the agenda for these conversations in contemporary times and what your sense of their potential is? Right. Thank you for that question. I think when I think about myself as a feminist and what shaped me as a feminist, my childhood, obviously, the violence, gender-based violence, but coming of age, becoming 18 years old in 1990 when apartheid supposedly officially was transitioning to democracy that period of my early 20s also there was a sense of hope and optimism and that we were moving into an arena of freedom that we did not have before and it was a very stark contrast because I remember I'm of that age where I remember not being able to go into certain public spaces because that were for whites only. I remember sitting in a non-whites only train carriage every day as I went home from school. So apartheid is real to me and it was real to me. And so the opportunities opened up, being able to study, being able to develop as a young person professionally and intellectually the world felt very open to me at that moment in the early 90s and even in the 2000s. What, what we have now are young women coming of age in a, in, a, in a very different society where the promise of freedom has been squandered. We have unprecedented levels of gender-based violence. We have people dying by femicide daily. We have rape out of control in this country. We have hate crimes against gay, lesbian, and transgender people in our country um, almost daily now. There's something in the news. So we have this youth unemployment rate, which is projected to sit at 74%. And what are the next generation of young people and young women have inherited is 
profoundly not good. Um, it is it is profoundly dysfunctional. It's violent. It forecloses opportunities for meaningful lives, for actualizing themselves professionally, intellectually, for dignified living, for having a job, for just having a meaningful life. The way that I see young people struggle with things that my generation took for granted, you work hard and you pass and you will get a job and you will build a nice middle-class life. That was the 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 dream that that we were sold as people who were young people at that transitionary moment and it is not an option it is not an opportunity there are no opportunities for people um you know i speak to young women who are feeling profoundly hopeless about what kind of future is going to be available to them in South Africa. Where do they locate themselves? They don't want to be in academia because it's so violent. They have been victims themselves of physical violence and sexual violence, and they're trying to live with that trauma. And so um, it is really, I think, to answer the question, intergenerational conversations, um, we need to really listen very well and take into account these circumstances. And we have to listen and support and be allies because their struggles are unique to them and we don't have those same struggles. I have the security of a job and no one that I know that's in the 20s that is a feminist that is a queer feminist or a queer black woman or even a heterosexual woman has that. So we have to, in a way, be led by these feminists and support them and, um, and, and work with them to, to change things. I, I do think that's very necessary for us to move forward in this situation. I think it is a very overwhelming time. The unemployment figures alone are enough to make anyone feel just completely traumatized by almost a wasted effort. So like, what is the point of, of trying in a system that is so determined not to reward you for your efforts? It's really difficult. So one way to have those intergenerational feminist conversations is, of course, through reading fiction and engaging with the writing of feminists across eras and generations. In the author's preface to your latest book and wrote my story anyway, you describe working in a, working as a journalist in 1994 and being assigned a book by Bessie Head, a writer who was unfamiliar to you at the time. And in your preface, you say, extremely conscious of her agency as a writer and wishing to leave a legacy, Head had been writing into a future she could neither have predicted or anticipated. Yet our meeting on the page was an encounter she must have foreseen, writing as she did across time and space. Meeting her like this knocked my world off its axis. Never before had I encountered the subjectivity of a young coloured woman at the centre of a novel. The message I had received through 20 years of fiction reading was that the interiority of a young black woman embedded within apartheid social relations was simply not a subject worthy of literature. Head's work jolted me awake, I realized, because I had not thought it possible that a black woman could be a writer. Tell me about this moment and what it meant for you and your writing and your feminism. Yeah, uh, that's such a long time ago now. <laughs> and it, it really was a profound moment for me because I had encountered this. I saw the first thing even was the picture, the author's picture on the page on the jacket of the book and seeing someone who looked like me and I knew nothing about Bessie Head at that stage. I knew nothing about her history or what she had gone on to produce because the book that I was getting to review was called The Cardinals and it was only published. It was the first or one of the first novellas that she wrote, but it was published only in the 90s after she had passed away and after she had become the literary figure that she was and produced her novels and other writing. And 
So, so that was an unknown, unpublished, previously unpublished work. And it was set in Cape Town. It was amazingly written. The protagonist was a journalist like me. And she was living in Cape Town and walking around all the same places that I was going. And she was sitting on the mountain and trying to write, teaching herself or being mentored by Johnny in the book. How to uh, on how to write, how to make her writing come alive, and so it was very much a book also about writing and becoming a writer and and what it takes for a young woman of her social position and race and class to make that step to become a writer. And it was as if this just spoke to me because me, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't think it would ever be possible for me I, I gave up that dream even before I could articulate it and the next thing that I could become if I couldn't write books was to be a journalist and so I in a sense settled for journalism because I thought this is a way to do writing but the world of fiction and creative writing I had not I really that's what I really wanted but I I, I couldn't even set my heart on that prize because it was so unattainable for me and so that encounter with Head really changed my life because I thought well here here was someone who did it and I that was the first time I encountered a black woman's writing and from there on I started reading Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and those writers black writers from the USA but there was no one else here and so this is what started my, uh, many years later, I was able to go back to university and do my master's in gender studies. And I chose the University of the Western Cape to do it. Why? Because I could take electives in creative writing there as part of my gender studies master's, which was, and that option was not available elsewhere. So I was Keep kept on being drawn, and even then, I, I I studied writers, still believing. Well, I don't think I can write. I'll just study them. Um, so that that encounter with Head really was a, 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 a encounter that changed my life and shaped my life, and I'm very grateful that I was able to have it. It sounds like a key that just opened a door that you didn't know was there this whole time. I mean, it's I love when books can do that for people. I think it's it's so it reminds you of the importance of fiction as as a key to another world. Um, and 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 wrote my story anyway is a book that examines ten English novels or ten English fiction pieces by Black South African women writers during the late twentieth and early twenty first century. And for readers who haven't yet read the book yet, who I hope are going to go and get it now straight after this podcast, tell me more about how you chose those writers and the process of exploring their fiction as feminist theory. The book comes out of my PhD and then this question arose after my reading of Head. And these, these are years between the questions even coming up for me and making connections because when I first read Head's book, I was twenty one or 22 and by the time I started doing my master's I was in my mid-20s and when I started my PhD I was 30 and so the question then that popped up throughout my master's study was then I started being familiar with Miriam Plady's work and Loretta Noble and Cynthia Magona and I started thinking to myself why have I never heard of these people? And why have I never read them? And of course, the answer is about apartheid and the structure of cultural production and censorship and banning and our emerging democracy histories being obscured. And we're still in that process of writing histories of that time and earlier. And, and and that was really the question that made me planted the seed for this book, is why aren't people, why don't we know about Miriam Plady? Why don't we know about Loretta Noble? Why don't we know about Bessie Head, the, the average South African citizen 
so that made me say, well, I will write about them. I want to write about them. And then I was, Miriam Tladi and Loretta Noble were still alive at that time. So I interviewed them and other writers about what it took for them to become writers. Because for me, you know, in my mind, what, what really crystallized some of the questions was the idea that I had, I was educated, but I still didn't feel that it was possible for me to write. So what did it take for them to write? That was really the question that I was interested in. What made them become writers? Because my secret longing was to be a writer. I was looking for answers very indirectly. Then who I chose were really people who I thought were significant first. And I know that the idea of first is problematic. The first black writer, the first black writer to publish in English, the first black writer to publish in South Africa. But, but there are nevertheless certain foundational texts that black women writers have produced that if you read them collectively, like I do in this book, for me, produces a theory of, of feminism and it's intersectional. It's about capitalism. It's about race and class. It's about homophobia and about the non-acceptance of queer lives. And when we look to these writers, they give us very clear um, theoretical instruction, and I don't mean it in the pedantic sense, but there is a theory there of liberation, which I think is quite important. And on theories of liberation, at a point early in the book, you quote from um, Heads the Cardinals, where the character Johnny says, maybe we writers can help throw some of those imposed standards overboard. It is a great responsibility to be a writer at this time. So what do you think the duty of the feminist writer is in this post-apartheid, unequal, pandemic-stricken, climate-damaged time? This is such a difficult question to answer because I think writing is fundamentally about freedom for me and I know for others. And so to almost impose a feminist framework on oneself as a writer, I'm only going to speak for myself here, it's quite narrow because it's why can't I then write about sex and sexual pleasure? That is a feminist act, but you know, must my concern always be feminist? Um, I suppose it will always be because I'm a feminist and I love those values in my life. So my it will somehow reflect in my writing without me, you know, when I'm sitting down to write, I don't think, well, let me write this feminist, anti-racist text. But the way in which I move through the world and experience the world is feminist. And so that will come, no matter what I do, it will be feminist, um, I think. I, I don't have to attune myself too much to that. So I think the responsibility of the feminist writer in this contemporary moment is to do whatever the hell she wants to. Art doesn't have to have a function. It, it should and does exist for the sake of itself. But I suppose we are shaped very fundamentally by our environments. And so writers like Sindhiwe Magona, for example, you know, she's with her corpus. She looked as she looked at the, um, the the murder of Amy Beale in her one book. Beauty's gift is about violence against women. You know, we we do write about these political things because these are part of our lives, and we have been up against these political structures for men most of our lives. Um, you know, if you look at the age of someone like Magona, she's lived through so much in terms of apartheid, forced removals and so on, and her migrations and patriarchy, how it's shaped her life. You know, I just think we need to just be creative. We need to, the idea that, that we have a duty, it's so constricting. Mm. I would love us to get to a point in this country, in the world, where we can just, I write because it moves me and because it gives me joy and because it's pleasurable. Yeah. And yet they are, they, I have unique things to say and a voice 
and there are issues that I want to highlight and these issues may resonate with others. I think you, you're right because I think so often a duty can become a boundary and that's not at all what I think we want for any writer is to have something which they are allowed to write about or not allowed to write about or must write about. Um, but it's interesting to reflect on you know, what are the times that I feel like I can't write about something and, and what does that mean? And what are the times that I feel like I must write about something and what does that mean? All of these are tied to, as you say, who's been able to make literary production at all in the first place. And, and then there's also what does my voice enable and what does my skill enable? What, what can it, because if you're a fem feminist, you are fundamentally wanting change in the world and in your society that's the point that you recognize your society as limiting and unjust and um, curtailing freedom for women. Fundamentally, that's the point. And so what can I crystallize through my voice, through my vision, um, through my skill? I think that does exist with the impulse also for creativity. Yeah, and I think... And something that you also say in the surfacing collection in your essay, Echoes of Miriam Clowley, you speak about summoning the feminist and literary ancestors when you practice your work in the academy or in your writing. Um, and so there's also a sense of, you know, having a, a gratitude towards those ancestors and wanting to summon them to share, you know, the archive or the story or the analysis that they've enabled you to have in the world. And, and who are some of the ancestors that you think listeners should be aware of and read and engage with? Well, it's, it's personal as well as political, but whoever has shaped you. So I think there are writers, I exist as a writer in this world who's able to write and publish because of the women who went before me and fought very difficult battles. And certainly Mariam Tladi is one of them and Loretta Noble, people who fought very, very hard to have a voice and to have their work published and who were harassed and brutally um, dehumanized for daring to write. I also think of people like Pumla Dine Ogola, who makes a path in the academy in very, very, um, uh, uh, what's the word, um, tangible ways for other women. Um, I think about her citational practices and how she always cites, um, even when I was a master's student, she was citing my work. And she makes a space for others to come in to the structure. And I think those kinds of people are important because we, someone like me really wouldn't exist it's very contradictory, but I also think the callist movement, um, the, you know, they're not ancestors to me, but they've an enabled room for a scholarship like mine to exist at a place like UCT before the Roads Must Fall and Please Must Fall movement. No one was interested in my work that became and wrote my story anyway, really. Um, and then there was this really urgent call for decolonization. That call was there all along, but it could no longer be ignored after those movements or during those movements. And then someone like me, who couldn't find a job in South Africa, who was going to return to the United States because they wanted me, but South Africa didn't, then suddenly I, I was able to get a job in the South African Academy Whereas in the years prior to that, you know, I was at most um, offered contract work as someone's research assistant, even though I had a PhD. So, so really those movements, um, I think, also enable a, a huge feminist, um, anti-racist uh, change to happen within the academy. It's very powerful to think that there's, a, I mean, I'm not sure what the right word is for an ancestor that is among you now, just I suppose the spirit of feminism that is really changing our contemporary reality right now is very strong. And I do feel, I mean, I've been writing feminist stuff 
for not as long as you, but for for like a lot the last thirteen years now, and it feels great to me that there's so many voices that are taking up space and sharing analysis and you know causing you to look and relook and look again at your world every day. I feel mm-hmm. very grateful for that. And I have three last questions that I'm going to ask you that I ask everyone on the podcast. I think you might find the first one impossible to answer. And do you have a book that has inspired your feminism that you can recommend? Where do I start? I have to start with Titi Dangaremka's Nervous Conditions. Really, that was a life-changing, world-changing book for me. Um, and then I think... Um, you know, there are just so many. Um, Audre Lorde's work, Azami, was also quite an important text for me. Um, Toni Morrison's work, all of her books really, really were, are, I think, very important in terms of feminism and race and how to write. Um, South African books, Again, Muriel at Metropolitan was how I first read it, which is the novel written by Miriam Clady, Between Two Worlds. I think that's really an important work. I think for people who want to understand what feminism is in a South African context, a good book that I would recommend is um, Malebo Sekodi's book, Misbehave, published by Blackbird Books. It's a really very good primer on intersectional feminism um, in South Africa. And then I would also recommend um, Queer Africa, the two volumes published by um, Gala, is it? Um, Of short stories, because I think, you know, our feminism needs to take into account the intersectional realities of of queer identities and a lot of the time it it doesn't um so i think it's important to also think through feminism or feminisms um not as located on one axis of struggle but on multiple axes i also think Sylvia Tamale's collection on African sexuality, which is an important book also. And do you have um, a quote that inspires you or that you live by? Wow, I am a person who loves quotes. I have them all over. This one is by Aminata Fauna. And it goes, The power of the story lies in the hands of the storyteller to see oneself only ever reflected through the eyes of another is to view the self through a distorting lens. This is the shared experience of all those whose place in history has been marginalized. That's amazing. And then my final question for you today is what is your advice for other feminists on their journeys? Probably right now this would differ at any other time when you ask me, but find community and build community. I think it's so true. Thank you so much, Barbara, for coming to talk to me today and for sharing your insight and wisdom and work with the world. And we are all grateful for it. So thank you. Thanks so much, Jane, for your work and for having me here. It's Mm. been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.